0: Welcome to The Restored View of the Old Testament by Book of Mormon Central with Lynn Wilson and John Cho.
1: Hello, hello!
0: And as we always start with um, all of our podcasts, the three key questions here, how does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life?
1: You know, in our chapters today, um, in the book of Moses and the book of Genesis, there's something that ties directly on to your your statement, your question there about how can this draw me closer to Christ? Because um, Enoch is preaching here in Moses chapter six, and he says, all things have their likeness and all things are created and made to bear record of me both things temporal and spiritual, and he goes on, and all things above the earth, below the earth, all things bear record of me, that we're supposed to be looking for types of Christ in everything. And if this is one of Enoch's um, messages, and then it's repeated again in the Book of Mormon, Um, 2 Nephi chapter 11 repeats this. King Benjamin repeats that we need to look for Christ in all things. It reminds me of the um, transcendentalists of America in in early American religious history where they looked for Christ in nature and they looked for Christ. But I hope as we look at these beautiful stories today of Enoch finishing up Enoch and Noah and the Tower of Babel, we can not only see um, the effects of God's love on these people but we can also see um Christ in Christ's life foreshadowed. I really feel like we get a beautiful view of that in today's topics of both Enoch's translation of his people as well as Noah and and the Tower of Babel especially with the Jaredites. It's
0: great. So let's get some context here. So what's going on well, Enoch has just—we
1: we, we, we got through a few of the chapters of Enoch, but I just want to go back to chapter 6, verse 62, where Enoch is saying, this is—and this is the first time we hear this phrase—the plan of salvation. This is not a biblical phrase. This is in the restored scripture. This is Joseph Smith's translation of Genesis that is not in Genesis. And I love the way that he titles it as the plan of salvation. And then he continues on in verse 62 to say, it is the plan of salvation unto all— man, all men, humanity, through the blood of mine only begotten. It is the salvation through the redemption of Christ. And he goes on then to say, and everything before then is a type of Christ. And then he talks about how Adam was baptized and the ordinances are to look and project us to, at least the baptismal ordinance, the death and resurrection of the Savior. And um, I just really— appreciate the fact that in the ancient world, it's called the plan of salvation. Um, And we have to focus on Jesus Christ. It's not the plan of happiness in this life. Right now, we have to seek salvation because we are a fallen people. And we have a lot of repenting to do every day, our prophet tells us, you know. Um, But I feel like these few chapters that were added to the um, account of Enoch— are some of the most beautiful chapters. If you really want a spiritual boost, you know, open up Moses chapter six and seven and eight. And it, just beautiful to hear how this Zion society was formed at one heart and one mind and no poor among them. And then um, we get the, we talked a little bit last time about the weeping Enoch and the weeping God and what what this tells us about their characters, about who our prophets and who our our Savior are. And I think that it's, Synthesized in verse thirty-nine of chapter seven, where Christ or Jehovah is referred to um, as He who I have chosen. This is this is Elohim speaking. I believe it's the Father speaking that I have chosen. Pled before my face. Wherefore He suffered for their sins, inasmuch as if they will repent. In the day, my chosen will return unto me, and unto that day, this idea that the Savior is pleading before the Father in our behalf, if we will repent, is just powerful. And you know, once the city of Enoch is taken, we then are left with wicked people, and that's when yeah. poor Noah is 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 left, and. So know, who's Enoch left? saw Noah in vision way ahead of time. He saw his dad, his grandpa, you know, and he pled with the Lord that he would have this covenant. And when we think of the rainbow and all the covenants entitled that the world would never be flooded again, once we read the book of Moses, we realize these are covenants with Abraham. I mean, excuse me, with Enoch, as well as with Noah, as well as later on and to the next generation. But um it's It's a beautiful transition to see the way that um Enoch knew that once the righteous were taken, the wicked would have to be destroyed. Because it's, it's really an act of kindness. God is being merciful to take away the wicked and give them another chance to repent in another sphere without satanic temptation. And, and not have children born in an environment where they won't be able to distinguish from their own experience good from evil because there's such an onslaught of wickedness. You know, I, I really feel like um, the destruction when God is calling it, not when mankind does it, but when God calls destruction, it's, it's for our benefit. It's going to be in the long run for everybody's good to learn in a different environment.
0: I think so, too. Because, again, I, I go back to Lehi's experience with that when he foresees the destruction of Jerusalem. Oh, His first yes. thought is, like, how merciful the Lord is. So I, I definitely see that, you know, especially when you have the perspective that he does, right? You know, and so— <laughs> Yeah. Right. And it's like, you know, no one cares more about his kids than he does. And this is something that he's doing for the best for the best of us. Right. Not just not just that generation, but all future generations, right? You know, which is which is his work and his glory. Right? Yeah.
1: And that's the blessing is we see things in this finite world and the prophets, these seers, have the gift to see beyond. And Enoch had it and Noah had it. And, um, you know, Noah preached for a long time. I, I think of the disparity of missionaries saying, you know, I didn't have any success on my mission. COVID was a downer and nobody was interested or whatever it is. Think of doing that for centuries. Poor, <laughs> poor Noah is, you know, yeah. centuries. He's 600 years old before he leaves, before the floods. You know, he has been trying to get rally around people to, feel, to make the— Effort to come to know the name of the Lord. In fact, here's a beautiful um, verse here on our sweet Noah, coming out of chapter 8 of the book of Moses. And a lot of chapter 8, in my scriptures, I have every little word that's added, different colors from the Genesis account, so I can see exactly. But, you know, he, he knows that the covenant is going to be fulfilled. He knows that Enoch has made that covenant with God. He knows that Noah's the one doing it, he knows he, he's the one doing it. But we have this beautiful addition um here in starting in verse 17 and 18, um, where the Lord tells Noah, My spirit will not always strive with man, for he shall know that all flesh shall die. So he's giving him this prophecy way ahead of time. And this is, as I mentioned, not in the in the text of Genesis. And if all men do not repent, I will send in the floods upon them. So I'm thinking Noah was the most motivated missionary. He knew that this was going to come ahead of time. And yet he continues on in verse 19 um, that people sought to take away Noah's life. But as it says, the power of the Lord was upon him. And the Lord ordained Noah after his own order. You know, Joseph Smith tells us that every prophet— Held the, um, had their endowment and held the Melchizedek priesthood and taught from that perspective. But it's just so nice to see it here in black and white um, that the Lord ordained him that when he received um, the priesthood, it was after the order of the Son of God, his own order. And that allowed him to have the extra mantle to carry out his very, very difficult calling of not having anybody, and even his own grandchildren were told are going to be destroyed. It's just three of his sons and their wives who were rock-solid righteous.
0: Hmm. I want to go back to, because you mentioned something, um, and this reminded me of a a scripture in in early Genesis, Genesis 6, um, which you said, you know, my spirit now, so now I strive for man. The verse before that, that's verse 3 in in, uh, In Genesis Genesis 6. But verse 2, it says, "The, uh, the sons of God and saw the daughters of men. Oh, they were fair, yeah, right? And took them twice, to yeah. and this seems to have set off a whole, you know, th- you know the okay, circumstances so around part that. of the so,
1: problem is for Latter Day Saints. Who do you think the Sons of God are?
0: Right. Well, the um, Sons of the Covenant, right? Yeah, These they're
1: are, the Sons of the Covenant, the people who are following God. But for some reason. Most other biblical scholars and biblical translators and a lot of history of a lot of other faith traditions that use the Bible outside of Christianity and inside um, interpret this as there's somebody up in heaven that's coming down and having sex with women. And these wicked people on earth, these wicked women, are messing everything up uh, with these sons of God. And and so we've got this weird breed of half half God, half mortals, so and they've got to be wiped out. And there's giants on the land. you know, it, they, they come up with all these crazy ideas that have nothing to do with what's really happening. But um, in our text— the Lord tells us what that means. And even in the New Testament, he tells us, you know, I, if you're a, if you're a son and daughter of God, you're one who will follow me and you can become sons of God. It's also in the Psalms, actually, as I'm remembering now, we can become um, sons and daughters of God if we will follow him. So yeah, I'm glad you you brought that up because that's a, that's a little confusing, but the bottom line, I think what the Lord is trying to say is er, the scriptures are trying to say that these, um, these daughters of men are those who are self-centered. They're too self-sufficient. They they have no need for God. I'm going back to the text that is not in Genesis 6, but is in Moses 8, verse 21. You know, they're eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, um, but they want they hearken not unto the words of Moses. Right. And then in verse 22, God saw that the wickedness of the men had become great, and, there, um, and this is interesting, every man was lifted up in the imagination of his own, thoughts of his own heart being only evil continually. You know, they're so they're focused. Yeah, they're, they're totally selfish. self-centered. Yeah, totally selfish. They have no need. And, you know, and then he, he's calling baptism. He's calling repentance, which, of course, we know is to care for one another's burdens. It's to it's to say, I'll be like Christ. I'm here not to be served, but to serve others. I'm here to take care of those who are mourning and those who need help. You know, it's, it's,
0: it's just beautiful. I see this as a warning, right? Because, you know, if, if we take this, Sons of God as people of the covenant, daughters of men, to me that's um the natural man
1: right? ah. as an enemy
0: to God, right? Which again inside nice. from the Book of Mormon, right?
1: Nice, yes. And so
0: if you are trying to or, you know, I, I see other scriptures too, like, you know, one hand on the plow, you know, et cetera, and you, and you can't yeah. you can't serve God, you no know, God and mammon, right? And so on. So so this is a recurring theme throughout the New Testament, Old Testament, and the Book of Mormon. Like, look, if you are a covenant-making, and you're serious about your covenant, right? Not just born into the covenant, but you're an actual covenant-maker, um, that uh, be careful dabbling in the natural man, yeah. right? Yeah. Because that's what sets up...
1: And right on top of Enoch, yes, this is right on top of Enoch, who said it took three hundred and sixty-five years to get all the materialistic, self-centeredness out of the people so that they could be of one heart and one mind. And that's how Zion fled. And that's and the only people left are these wicked people who um, don't see it clearly. And I hope we know from section one thirty-eight in the Doctrine and Covenants they will have a chance to hear the gospel again. It says right there in section one thirty-eight. Even if they denied the prophets, they will have a chance to hear the gospel again. It's very—I mean, God's plan is so merciful. It's wonderful. But poor Noah, what a tough—I mean, just the missionary part would be a tough assignment. And then gathering the animals? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) oh, the whole thing just sounds so hard. But we're told in verse 27, at least in the um, Noah— found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he was a just man and perfect in his generation, and he walked with God. So I think he had a lot of tutoring, as did his sons, Ham. And it's interesting, his, his son's order is different in the Doctrine and Covenants and the Great Price. Um, Japheth is the first born right. and then Shem, and then Ham.
0: The, no, I, I think there's something interesting just that, that uh, comes to mind, with Enoch versus Noah, and this is a temptation, I think, to think that, oh, if I'm only righteous enough, I can, I would be part of Zion. And that's, mm-hmm. that's not true, right? Yeah. You know, the yeah. righteous are called to If I'm the only righteous enough, I would have
1: better missionary success. Right. If I'm only righteous enough, you know, if it were my, no, no, we got to leave that on the hands of the Lord. And just remember, we work for him. We're not in charge. We are his servants.
0: Yeah. I need to be running that
1: <laughs> fairly it right? often.
0: It's <laughs> not it's not a, a marriage, right?
1: Yeah, it is not. But this um go back to your Genesis 6 and I want to talk about um a couple of things. The idea that the Lord commands him to build an ark yeah. is really interesting to me, especially when I'm reading it in Hebrew because the word for ark is used for the same word that Moses' basket is. So both Noah is a temporal savior for humanity, and Moses becomes a, a spiritual savior in a way as he is going to be a restoration prophet again to redeem the people um, from their place of slavery into a place of promised land. And um, I looked up the gopher wood, the ark of gopher wood, and they think gopher wood is actually extinct now, but it comes from the same family as cedar or cypress, okay. and they even thought it could be an achaia tree in the – in the um. Um, Aramaic translation, it says a, a Archaea tree. But um, I thought cedar or cypress would smell great. You know, I thought, if you're, as long as you're in the boat, you don't know, you know want these moths to get out of control. Let's make sure we have some cedar wood.
0: Now you have me thinking of you know, the cedar ships are... I put in the hamster cage right, yeah, to yeah, exactly. call <laughs> those animals. Yeah.
1: The dimensions are given. If a cubit is, you know, your fingertip to your elbow, and they usually use the king's measurement so the cubit wasn't always the same but approximately 18 inches you're talking about something like i mean think of a football field it's 450 feet by 76 feet by 45 feet that's enormous um but but really when they tried to reproduce this and they use baby animals i don't know if you've ever read any of these national geographic things or whatever you know they try to reproduce the ark they they think okay he probably used baby animals and it probably was the animals that lived in his sphere um the It's certainly everything that Noah could see, everything he could gather, you know, um, probably wasn't the kangaroos, but, um, you know, (laughs) but at least within his sphere, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to make any guesses on this one. Um, But if they used babies, there was room in the ark for more things. But I thought, oh, but not with... Well,
0: not all were two by two, though, right?
1: Oh, that's right. That's right. That's, that's, that's... Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. That's chapter seven. So it's two by two in chapter six, but then in chapter seven, verse two... Of every clean beast, thou shalt take thee by sevens, the male and his female, of the beasts that are not clean by two. Um, so if they're going to be used for sacrifice, yeah. we need more. If they're going to be used for food, we need more. He's never too keen on us eating a lot of meat, um, especially in the Joe Smith translation. After Noah's time, he says, let's let's only hunt if you need food. Um
0: well, I see this again as a pointing towards the temple, towards oh. a Christ. Of course, right? You know, these are the clean animals, which of course are supposed to be sacrifices. Which of because course, they're a type of Christ. They're a type of Christ, right?
1: Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah.
0: And so um, it's an interesting distinction. He goes, the little goes. I was like, okay, this is set apart. And the flood, of course, you know, being just practical in nature, which we talked about, you know, reset, you know, essentially making Noah a second Adam uh, and his wow. family. Yes. But the flood itself, you know, what was that like, right? How long did that take?
1: Oh, yeah. In fact, it, I, I always make charts of everything when I'm reading my scriptures. So on my, in my scriptures, on the little column I have, it rained 40 days. They floated for 150 days. They rested on the mountain when it got sturdy there for about six months. They opened up the top of the ark, and it was muddy for a month. And then they're able to depart So it's got to be—excuse me, I was wrong. It's 56 days when it's still filled with mud. But, you know, during that time when they've opened it up and it's it's all muddy, and um, they know that they're going to get out soon because they've already done the bird. So remember, he lets out the raven first and then the dove and the dove comes back the first time with nothing and the second time with the little olive branch, you know, so he's trying to see everywhere he sees is covered with water. So the text says the whole earth is covered with water because that's all he sees. It reminds me of the New Testament. The whole world had to be taxed. Well, it was the Roman world, you know, so I'm not going to make any predictions of how much of the earth was covered, but certainly everything he knew was and certainly it's beautiful symbolism spiritually of the earth having a spirit being baptized by water and then at the end of the world will be baptized by fire at the coming of the lord but um this, well you have
0: you have an interesting type of christ i'm looking for types of christ in this right yeah. so the 40 days of rain
1: oh let's talk about right? the number 40. oh i'm so glad you you said that i totally forgot that 40 is the purification period Right. Um, Christ fasting, Elijah's fasting, or no, Elijah had to walk for 40 days on on the meal that he had. 40
0: years, right? In the 40 years of the
1: wilderness. Anyway, 40 is all over the place. But my favorite one of 40, to explain it all, is in the Law of Moses. After a woman delivers a man-child, a son, she uh, has him circumcised on day eight uh, because of the Abrahamic covenant. And then 33 days later, she is allowed to go to the temple and offer sacrifice again because she, that's her cleansing period. So the so the 33 plus the 8 is 41. So the 40 days is the cleansing period. And then on the 41st day, she goes back into the temple. Okay. And it's this cleansing that I see is symbolic for the number 40. Right. I don't know if every time the number 40 is used, they literally mean 40, 24 hour periods, or if it is the cleansing period. So um, sometimes. Like it is here, it might well be. And I presume for the Savior, it might well be. But I I also like remembering the symbolism of it, just like the seven clean animals. It takes
0: time. Either way, it takes time, It takes time.
1: Oh, that I could be purified in only 40 days. (laughs) (laughs) But the same thing with those seven clean animals. I think it's significant that that number is seven. Yeah. We think of the wholeness of the creation and also seven as the number of complete or purification. It's also a temple number. It's all over the place. So I'm, oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Numbers are really important here.
0: But, but after the flood, you have the dove, which is finally the symbol of hope, right? Yeah. It's not the raven, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's finally the dove. And I immediately think of the baptism, right? Which, of course, oh, this is an obvious symbol of Christ's baptism.
1: Of the spirit, right, and yeah. so and it's the spirit that gives us hope.
0: That's right. That's right. It's the so spirit
1: you, that does the cleansing. Remember, Joseph said, "You might as well baptize a bag of sand if you're not going to do it without <laughs> the gift of the Holy Ghost."
0: That's right. And oh, of course, beautiful. the order matters. Right. The you order know? matters. And so, um, you know, after the purification, we have you know the gift of the Holy Ghost, and of course, you know, and it the is, is the gift of the
1: Holy Ghost that does the cleansing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and um, so so I think this is just obviously an, another wonderful. Symbolism of of Christ's and his sacrifice, um, as well as his very real baptism, right? Which, of course, Nephi expounds on quite a bit in the Book of Mormon about the, the importance of Christ's baptism, as well, in the gift of. Well, Holy and you know too. when
1: Christ talks about baptism and other prophets too, they refer to it as um, reenacting the death of our Lord the death and resurrection. In fact, in early Christianity, um, I, when I studied this in grad school, um, the ancient baptisms are these um, full-size where people were actually immersed. And my teacher explained that you would step down and that represented holy um, the Lord's death, going down into the grave, his his crucifixion. And then you are in the tomb and then you rise out and there are steps on the other side of this tomb pool that they would use that would represent coming out of the tomb into life again, so that the whole baptism is to represent the death and resurrection of the Savior. And I see Noah's flood doing that as well. And in fact, I think the text of Genesis is beautifully um, orchestrated in verse 21, where the author has formed this little poetic, tight, tight, tight chiasmus, where the first line is... Also the last line, and the second line is the second the last line, and the most important message is in the very center. I'll just I'll just read this twenty-one to twenty-three, and I hope you can hear the Chapter seven. I'm in chapter seven of Genesis, yep. yep. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both the fowl and the cattle and the beast and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, and all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, or the spirit of life. Remember, breath is spirit. Um, of all this that was on the dry land died. That's the very center point. Everything is death here. And then here comes 23. And every living substance that was destroyed by which was on the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl and the heaven, and they that were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive and him that was with him in the ark. Um, so that they really want to emphasize the death of the wicked And that the opportunity for the righteous, Noah here is becoming like, a he is the temporal um, savior of the world. And I love the fact that Noah becomes angel Gabriel. And as the angel Gabriel, he gets to announce the spiritual savior of the world. He was the temporal savior and he announces the spiritual savior as Gabriel.
0: So we have this cycle, what's really the first big cycle, I would say, of purification right it starts with Enoch you know yes. and yes. then Noah through his purification yeah. and then shortly thereafter not that long after Noah we it's four find or five it,
1: generations is yeah old.
0: we find ourselves at the tower
1: back in another time that's needing another form of purification what's,
0: go, what's going on with the Tower of Babel what's you know, happening we don't here? have
1: a lot in, in um, the scripture of Genesis um, I guess it starts in chapter 11 doesn't it The whole earth was of one language and one speech. And in Greek, I mean, Hebrew, excuse me, it's one lip. They don't say one speech. It's one lip. I love it. Yeah. So everyone's speaking the Adamic language. And I think it's back in the book of Moses that tells us that God taught Adam and Eve how to read and write. So these people are literate, at least if they're following um, that pattern. And it sounds to me like the language was so beautiful that it was— carried on and it was treasured and we have just a few verses here in chapter 11 on it but we have a lot more in the book of mormon right and right. interestingly um biblical scholars that i've looked into just trash this they say this is not the way it happened i'll just study linguistics it didn't happen this way you know just look backwards look at the records and yet we find cuneiform text and egyptian hieroglyphics that date from the time of noah you know, we we find a lot of different languages from this time period, and this is only four or five generations after Noah. We've got this long section in between here of the genealogies, and on my on my videos, I have charts and handouts and things that take care of all the genealogy. It's obviously important, but um, it's also interesting to me that archaeologically they have found towers and things like the temple, the white temple of Zergen, um, they found archaeological evidences of people using brick that dates back to this time, that they've been able to figure out how to build a furnace that gets hot enough to make these bricks. And we don't get a lot of information in the text, but we do in the extra biblical sources and even down in Josephus's writings from the time of the um, after the New Testament. Josephus says, the problem was Nimrod. And here in the Bible, this goes back to chapter 8 of—no, no, 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 it's chapter 10 of Genesis. Here's Nimrod for the first time. Chapter 10, verse 8 and 9. He's called this mighty hunter before the Lord. And Joseph Smith changed that as he was a mighty hunter in the land. But when we read Josephus, he says, Nimrod—I'm just going to quote here—Nimrod led the people away from God and developed contempt for him. He changed the government into tyranny. And he vowed to build a tower as high as he could to go to God and chew him out. I mean, it's just hilarious. He wants to build a tower. In fact, the word Babel um, means gate of God. He's trying to do it. Now, um, it's also if you use different vowels, it also means mix or confound. So it's sort of a wordplay. But um, the real word Babel is the gateway of God, and they are trying to build something to get to heaven. Now, those of us who build, build buildings much higher than theirs realize <laughs> now that heaven is a little further than that, you know. But um, I, I feel like my biblical scholars who condemn this story, even though we have archaeological evidence that says, no, there was, there was language and there was uh, the ability to build buildings like this from this time period, it's not until you get to the Book of Mormon that right. we have— the wonderful story of the Jaredites that say no, they came out from the tower and it's not just an ether. The amazing thing to me in the Book of Mormon is that it's clear in the small plates
0: right.
1: um, Omni I, I don't know verse 27 28 somewhere around there. Omni talks about Coriantumr coming his people came from the time of the when the language was confounded and the great tower. And you know, just this tiny little reference in Omni, and then we get two more references in Mosiah when they find these twenty when Limhi's people find these twenty-four um, metal plates that record the history from the time of the tower or from the time of the confounding of the language, and and then of course we get the Ether story, um, and in the Ether story, I'm just to tie it into looking for Christ in the Old Testament, um, the Ether story adds a beautiful parallel with the temple that any temple symbolism I see is Christ like symbolism, but we have truth taught through the prophets. And then we have a period of apostasy and then we have a probation period where, um, the people have to choose from their own experience to distinguish good from evil. And in the Jaredite situation during that probation, they've got to get on a boat and travel halfway across the world. You know, it's a, a year without in this submarine kind of thing. And, um, Then, as we see, literally, the brother Jared is seeking more light, literally, but he's also seeking more light spiritually. He's a prophet of God. Um, As he's seeking greater light and knowledge, we see this beautiful connection with the temple because the hand of the Lord comes through the veil. He sees the hand, and then he pleads with the Lord to show himself, and he's allowed to enter into the presence of God. Um, So I see Noah's efforts— very similar in a temple-like pattern where you have this period of probation and then the Lord accepts your sacrifice is consistent with that of the Tower of Babel in the account of the Book of Mormon.
0: I mean, you can see that the Book of Mormon really brings a lot of light in in an area where there's so much speculation. Oh,
1: yeah. And I love the fact that the Book of Mormon is allowing us to believe the Bible, You know, people are denouncing the Bible, oh, this is just a fairy tale of how languages started, or uh, a tradition, or whatever, you know, a folklore. Uh, And yet, we can say, no, actually, it did happen, because we have a second witness right here. Right. I love it. Like,
0: you know, in Omni, you mentioned briefly, um, we have, specifically talk about the language, because when they find the city of Zarahemla there, their language has been confounded, right? Um, Because of the lack of a record, and... You know, with the Nephi. Mucites yeah, that's right. And so have with lost ne- their faith and everything. Right. You know, but they were covenant people led away, much like Jared, right? A brother of Jared um, and his family. Um, but
1: without the record. But without
0: the record. And so we see the confounding. And if you, you, if you see the record as a symbol of the covenant,
1: ooh, I like that. You
0: know, then, you know, that links what we talked about with Noah as well. And, and, uh, and so on. So so holding to that covenant um, and holding to um, the word of the Lord, I guess is a better way to put it, which which you could argue those are, they need those are that two of the prophetic same. You have to have voice. that. And then we, we talked about, you know, well, we could talk about language too, what that really means, right? So, you know, what it means for me to be, for language to be corrupt is that you miscommunicate a lot, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and so... Um, you, you can't... So it doesn't even
1: have to be corrupted. It could be our heart that needs to be softened. It can be
0: our heart. It, can, it You know, it, I'm trying to teach you something and you don't get it. And it seems like in this case, it was a blessing because like, you know, again, I'm not going to flood the earth again, right? But what I will do...
1: I want to I separate. I
0: want to separate so that this wickedness doesn't perpetuate and I'm going to lead away the righteous like the brother of Jared. As again, a type of Noah, which type of Christ, right? Um, that, uh, and again, the cycle of of purification and then redemption and leading away of the righteous so that they can build something meaningful again, right? You know, another Zion. It's also
1: interesting that Christ, as one of his titles, in addition to the Messiah and our Savior and our Redeemer, is the Word. And I know Logos has many, many, many different variations. I'm well aware of the Greek behind that one, but... I love the idea that in the beginning was the Word, that this Adamic language is taught by God, and Christ is the Word, and he then teaches them this language, which is the covenant language, and it carries the covenant, and then it's our responsibility to stay tethered to the Word through the Word. And I often laugh at this little phrase from seminary, but it's very helpful if you want a revelation, read one. You know, if you want a revelation from God, open up your scriptures and, mm-hmm. and with a prayerful heart, and or, or listen to the conference reports, listen to the prophets. You know, if you want a revelation, read one.
0: I think you know, in in likening this, um, you know, as some of the thoughts I have around. Obviously, there's these societal, big societal changes, and it's it's easy to get to to have that as as arm's length, right? Um, not very hard to liken it to today's society, right? But if I think about this on my individual journey, right, you know, where there's a part of me that just needs to go through this regular purification, because just over time, it just becomes corrupt and, you know, the righteous, you know, um, covenant-making part has to be separated and led away, right? We
1: have to have our purification. I think this is why it's so important to have these ordinances regularly. And it's interesting, the sacrament water, of course, represents the blood of the Savior, but isn't it Interesting also to think of it in this context of the cleansing of the flood and the cleansing of the waters, separating ourselves from the wicked. And and the way we do that is applying the blood of the Savior. The atonement is the answer on how to do this. I love it, John. Thanks. That's just beautiful. I hope that um, the the ideas of these prophets can ring in your heart. And next week we'll talk about? Abraham. Yay! I even named my son. My son, Abraham. I yeah. love that prophecy. Yeah,
0: this is one of my favorite parts. Yeah, yeah. Of the look Old forward to
1: talking to you about the covenant and the sacrifice, the Abrahamic sacrifice. Yeah. God bless you. Thank you. Bye-bye.